Today we are continuing our sermon series in Acts uh, chapter 23. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 23, verse 11, I'm going to call Rihanna Wamser up to read for us. And we're going to be starting in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves um, by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire some more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Much. Maybe seated again. All right. Thank you, Rihanna. All right. Well, today's message is called the plot to kill or the the plot to kill Paul, um, and I had I found a a, a quote by G.K. Chesterton uh, a while ago, and it's it's always stuck in my head, uh, and it, it's kind of the theme of today's message. And the quote goes like this: I believe in getting into hot water, 
it keeps you clean. Okay? I believe in getting into hot water, it keeps you clean. But think about it, lukewarm water. It's not good for drinking, not good for swimming, not good for showering, not good for cleaning, not good for much of anything, right? And then you got lukewarm faith. It just sounds dull. It's uninviting, it's uninspiring. You're neither cold and distant about Jesus, and, nor you're not hot or on fire for him either. You're, in relation to Jesus, you're just kind of just there, lukewarm. You ever gone to the sink on a hot summer day and you grabbed your favorite cup, you turned on the faucet, filled it to the top, and then you put it to your mouth and it's lukewarm, right? Yuck, you spit it into the sink and it doesn't quench your thirst, it's disappointing, it's unrefreshing. Or you hop into your vehicle after being out in the cold uh, for a few hours. I remember uh, working on chimneys when it was below zero. And I hop into my, my cold truck and I, I'm chilled to the bone and I have my thermos of hot coffee or tea or so you think and you, you grab it and then you tilt your head back and it's lukewarm. Yuck. It makes you actually feel colder, dirty, tired. You know, it just it doesn't, doesn't do the job. Lukewarm water is disappointing on both ends. If you're bathing, you either want hot water or cold water, right? Cleansing and refreshing, not lukewarm. In the Tobo village where we used to live, everyone bathed under a short waterfall. The water was numbingly cold. You would get a brain freeze just looking at it. However, it was, it was cleansing, it was refreshing, it was rejuvenating, and no one bathed in lukewarm water. It was unheard of. G.K. Chesterton said, I believe in getting into hot water, it keeps you clean. And he was talking about a way of living life. He wasn't referring to a bathtub or a shower. And so many folks who call themselves Christians live their faith in a lukewarm state. They are not hot for Jesus, as in committing their whole lives to following and obeying him, nor are they cold for Jesus, as in unconcerned or uninterested. It's the classic, I'm playing it safe. I'm not willing to give up what I want for the sake of this Jesus character. However, I'm also not confident enough in myself or in my decisions to think I'll make it to heaven. And so I'll give Jesus his token time on Sundays just in case, but I'll live according to my own rules during the rest of the week. But Jesus calls us to follow him with this basic premise. Either believe me or don't believe in me, but you can't play it safe. Jesus calls us to follow him and he doesn't want us to be lukewarm. If, you, if your spiritual life is lukewarm, you won't live what Jesus calls the abundant life. With lukewarm spirituality, your walk with God will be marked by, by boredom. You'll only par, par, uh, partially commit to a group of believers. You won't take risks for Jesus. Consequently, you won't have any stories about how he, how he works in your life. You will not be totally defeated but you won't be victorious over sin. You, you may not be depressed, but you, you won't be full of joy either. Jesus said the following to the lukewarm church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. And, and remember, he's talking to a church. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The King James says, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich and I have prospered. I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, Jesus doesn't like lukewarm followers any more than, he likes, than we like lukewarm water on a hot July day. Lukewarm followers have a sort of take-it-or-leave-it mentality towards Jesus. Therefore, they do not fully enter into the reality of what Jesus has done for them. If you look at what Jesus said in verse 11 of our passage in Acts today, 
It says that the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And we talked about that at the end of last week's sermon. But, but the purpose of all that Paul was going through, the purpose of Paul's life, the trajectory, the end game, was that Paul preached the gospel to more and more people. Paul's final destination, according to the will of Jesus, was going to be Rome. Paul would preach the gospel there. And what was Jesus most concerned about here? Was he concerned with Paul's purity ritual that he was going through in the temple? No. Was he concerned with whether Paul was teaching the law or not? Was he concerned with Paul's income level or his, his church attendance? No, not in this passage. Jesus' high, highest concern for Paul was to be on fire for him and to remain faithful to preaching the gospel. The next place would be in Rome. And Jesus told him that he did a a good job testifying before the Jewish kangaroo court in Jerusalem. And Jesus assured him that he would do the same thing when he got to Rome. You see, Christianity is not simply a lukewarm belief in a set of propositional truths about Jesus. He was born, he died, he rose from the dead, and he's going to come back again someday. That's not what it's about. Faith doesn't stop in the theological or the theoretical discussions. Jesus is concerned uh, with more than just looking good or following a set of rules or good church attendance or knowing the, what the gospel actually is. The Christian life following Jesus, known in, the, in Acts as the way, is about living out the truths of Jesus every minute of every day. The Christian life is acting in accordance with the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. The way of Jesus is living selfless abandon for the sake of the will of God, not for our own will. The way is concerned with proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed to every creature so that they too may place their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and entrance into God's eternal kingdom. And the truth is, though, living as hot water for Jesus will cause waves when you come in contact with cold unbelievers of the world or lukewarm temperature of some Christians. In fact, if you're not living lukewarm towards Jesus, you will find yourself in hot water from time to time, like Paul. But that is good because it keeps you clean. And what I mean by clean is this. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 wrote, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's Romans 5, 3 to 5. This is what I mean by hot water keeping you clean. The suffering from being in hot water for Jesus produces endurance, character, and hope. The tough going, the hot water, the pressure cookers of life purifies and cleanse us from all impurity. Impurity being a lack of faith. And so the hot water purifies purifies our faith. It encourages our hope. Hope in Jesus does not put us to shame. Why? Because Jesus never fails us. He cleanses us from sin. He is with us in our fear. He changes us into his image. He empowers us to do his will. However, just because we are on fire followers for Jesus and our hope in Jesus cleanses us, doesn't put us to shame, this does not guarantee that life will go hunky-dory in a straight line, void of confrontation, difficulty, and suffering. In fact, let's see what happens to Paul as he lives his life on fire for Jesus. And that's our first point, the evil conspiracy, verses 12 to 15. When it was day, 
the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So this next day, after Paul has been through this this kind of council hearing, a group of 40 Jews took an oath to not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They planned to fast until they killed Paul. They put themselves under an oath, in essence, a curse. If they failed in their mission, they had cursed themselves. They vowed to kill Paul or try dying, or die trying, right? Forty men did this. That's a big group. That's a large number of people who didn't like Paul at all. Disliked him enough that they cursed themselves unless they killed him. Have you ever been disliked? I'm sure you haven't been that disliked to the point that 40 people were intentionally planning homicide and you were the target, right? Now, it puts things in perspective, right? Like, some of us have had those co-workers who are out to get us. They try to trip us up so we lose our job, but they weren't trying to kill us. Some of us have had those estranged family members trying to get us thrown into jail or kicked out of the family, right? But, but they weren't trying to kill us. My wife could say that she had 40 people out to kill her. That happened back when Muslim extremists raided her parents' home looking for them back years ago. But she's not the norm. My wife is not the norm. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, when people try to get us fired or removed from social media or blamed for all the bad in their life, many of us question our faith, right? Why is God doing this to me? God is not answering my prayers. If he was, then these folks would not hate me. What is God trying to do? And we want answers. But what if the answer we get isn't the answer we're hoping for? What if the answer to why is this happening is so that God can put us yet in another jail cell so that we can have the opportunity to tell more people about Jesus, as in the case of Paul? Jesus told Paul he was doing a good job, but people were still hunting him down. It was still dangerous and uncertain. And he was in, still in prison, headed for yet another prison in Rome. And back in verse 11, Jesus told him to take courage, to continue to be courageous, which meant that there was going to be more opportunity to what? Be afraid, right? There was going to be more opportunity to be courageous. And sometimes God's answers don't make us feel better in the moment. They are not intended to. His answers are intended to strengthen our faith and to purify our hope in him. And the chief priests and the elders were asked by these 40 assassins to deceptively request the tribune bring Paul out into public for a trial. But it was only to draw Paul out into the open so that they could kill him. Once Paul would be in the open streets, they would murder him in broad daylight. They were to use the tribune's desire to understand more fully what was going on as bait for the trap. Determine his case more accurately, they said. So there was lies, there was deception, there was treachery, there was hate, there was premeditated murder. Paul was accused of teaching everyone everywhere against the law of Moses, and yet these priests, these devout Jews, were breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. The world is full of evil people, people who really do want to do other people harm. 
This is not a negative way of looking at the world. It is a realistic way of looking at the world. In fact, it's a biblical way of looking at the world. And this group of 40 were so serious about killing Paul that they fasted and took an oath. They were going to fast and pray until they got what they wanted. Now, God differentiates between a true fast and a false fast. He's not fooled. He knows the difference. A true fast is for the purpose of getting your will to come in line with God's will. A false fast is for the purpose of getting God to do what you want him to do. I want to take a little deviation, just talk about this idea of fasting. Uh, Turn to Isaiah chapter 58 if you want. Otherwise, I'm going to read it and you can listen along. Isaiah chapter 58, God talks about a true and a false fast. And it reminded me of this passage as I was reading through here. Isaiah 58, verse 3, halfway through the verse. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Down in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then will your light break forth like the dawn and your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard and you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry and he will say, Here I am. Think of that contrast of what a true fast is and what these guys were doing. The fast that sinful, selfish, self-centered people do, they fast for their own pleasure, for their own benefit, so that God will do what they want him to do. They fast so they can, as this passage says, quarrel and fight, and so that they can hit with a wicked fist, it says. It sounds like these 40 assassins, acting all spiritual, even cavorting with chief priests and elders, making it look spiritual. A false fast is for the purpose of trying to get God to do what we want him to do. It's selfish. A false fast is for the purpose of causing others to see things my way. A false fast is not even God-focused. It's self-focused. The fast that God desires is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to share bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless into your house, to cover the naked. In other words, a true fast is for the purpose of bringing our will into line with God's will. A true fast is for the purpose of causing us to see others as God sees them. A true fast is focused on others, not on ourselves. And the question for us is, why do we turn to God in fasting and prayer? Is it so that we can somehow manipulate him to get him to give us a raise or a better job or, or a bigger house or healing or successful surgery or whatever? Or do we fast and pray so that we will see the world as God sees it? So that we can receive God's heart of love and compassion, of grace and forgiveness for the world. So they said, we're ready to kill him. Before he comes near, the stage was set. The pawns were in place. They just needed to have him delivered on the next day and all would be over. But I love how God works. God will often use, as Tolkien says, hobbit type individuals to disrupt the evilest of plans. Point two, a bold informant, verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister 
heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. So the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for many, more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And so Paul's nephew heard about the ambush. Did you get that? Paul had a nephew. We didn't even know that Paul had a nephew or a sister or any living family for that matter. I wonder if Paul had stopped in to see his family while he was in Jerusalem. And Paul's nephew learned of this ambush attack and visited Paul in the barracks to tell him what was about to happen. He was kind of like J.R.R. Tolkien's Bilbo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings, right? He was just a little man caught up in an enormous plot. Paul's nephew wasn't even named in here. But his contribution has changed the course of events for Paul, for 40 men, for the 470 soldiers, and for every Christian who has ever lived afterwards. And I'll explain why in a second. But one doesn't typically just happen upon information like this. Paul's nephew was in hot water. He was paying attention, he was perceptive, and he was in the right place at the right time. God used him. He wasn't living a lukewarm Christianity My hunch is that Paul's nephew was caring for Paul on behalf of the Jerusalem church. Family members were the only ones allowed to visit prisoners and take them food and provisions while they were incarcerated. And so Paul's nephew did not shy away from this risk. And somehow in all this, he overheard the contents of this secret meeting. Additionally, he had enough proof and verification that he could present it to a Roman official and be believed. And he did his homework. Safety was not his main concern. If it were, he would not have gone to Paul. If those 40 men found out who ratted on them, I'm sure they would have killed him too. He would have been in hot water. But love motivated him. The only understandable motive for doing all of this for Paul was that he loved Paul. He loved his uncle as himself. And so this young man, we don't even know how old he was. He was probably in his teens as the guest. He informs Paul, who uses his status, even, as, even in jail, to command the centurion to take the young man to the tribune. And the centurion listened to Paul. He escorts this young man to the tribune. The tribune took him by the hand, that's interesting, and talked to him privately. This dude was in his teens. The tribune treated him with gentleness and listened to what he had to say. And the nephew relates the important information concerning the plot to kill Paul. The tribune hears the plot, looks at the young man, dismisses him with a warning not to tell anyone about what he just did, and then he sits back. Now you're a tribune, and he believes this young man. The tribune, based on this young man's testimony, went to great lengths to save Paul. Look at verse 23 and 24. And he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. (laughs) The tribune called two centurions and had them ready their soldiers, all 200 of them. 
And then he asked for 70 more horsemen and 200 spearmen to be called to duty. These 470 men, all seasoned soldiers, were called upon in the middle of the night to place Paul on a horse and escort him safely to Caesarea. That's a lot of logistics. That's a lot of manpower. There is a ton of work, a lot of moving parts to make that happen. All based on the information given by this one young man. What an awesome story that this nephew was able to tell his family, his children, his grandchildren in years to come. Think about that, right? What wonderful story. Uh, fireside stories to tell. In fact, someone told Luke, who's the author of Acts, and Luke thought it was cool enough and important enough to include in the Acts of the Holy Spirit, which now we read. And you know what this tells me? Everyone has a part to play in the plans and purposes of God, no matter how young or how insignificant you may be. This young man's bravery and risk resulted in salvation. He was used by God to save Paul's life. And the piece of information that this young man came upon was the difference between life and death. And it changed the course of history. If he had played it safe or been risk-averse or made long life his main concern, been motivated by selfishness, then he would not have been used by God to alter the course of history. If this young man had not acted out of love for his uncle, we may not have the New Testament books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Very important books. If Paul had died at that moment, he would not have authored those letters. Think of that. Never, ever underestimate the importance of the smallest acts of love. Love changes the course of history. And I love what Gandalf the Grey, I know he's not biblical, but Gandalf the Grey in the movie The Hobbit, he said, Some believe it's only great power that can hold evil in check, but that's not what I've found. I've found it's the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. And think of what this guy did for his uncle. That's the life of love and obedience that Jesus calls to. He doesn't call us to great acts of power and strength. No, he calls us to simple acts of love. Love for God and love for others. Because those, from those small but, insignificant, or but significant acts of kindness, God's power and God's will and God's kingdom is put on display for all to see. Jesus' loving act of willfully going to the cross was in the grand scheme of things a small, weak, ordinary act. But it was an an act of undeserved kindness and love and from that one act, God saved the world. Love changes the course of history. Now we get to our third point. The elaborate escape. Verse 25 And he wrote a letter to this effect. I'm not going to read the letter. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him to the night to Antipas, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter and asked, what province was he from? And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. I'm just going to touch on that letter. The tribune wrote a letter to accompany the troops with Paul. And the, the governor that he was going to was named Felix. The tribune's name we find out right now in this passage was Claudius Lysias. The tribune changed the facts in his letter ever so slightly, if you were with us the last couple of weeks. Uh, he did not save Paul because he knew he was a Roman citizen. He found that out after he stretched him out on the racks. 
Uh, he had learned this bit of information later on. Uh, however, he did the right thing by sending Paul to Felix and requesting that his accusers go and make their case before Felix because Felix was actually the authority who could make an official ruling regarding the case. The tribune didn't have the authority to do that. And the troops followed the orders and brought Paul to Caesarea. All 470 men, 471 with Paul, they leave in the middle of the night. No group of 40 Jewish assassins were a match for over 10 times the Roman military power. They went halfway uh, and then let the 70 horsemen continue on with Paul. And while the 400 went back to the barracks in Jerusalem, and when the horsemen got him there, and they delivered Paul to, and the letter to Felix. And Felix read the letter and then asked where Paul was from. Paul answered he was from Cilicia. His hometown, uh, his home city, Tarsus, uh, was in the province of Cilicia. And Felix was responsible for the Roman citizens in his area, and he knew the negative political ramifications of sending Paul to Cilicia for trial. It would make him look weak and and unable to handle the Jewish disputes, and so Felix went about waiting for Paul's accusers to arrive. In the meantime, Paul was held under guard in the praetorium. This was a heavily guarded fortress. No group of 40 would be able to get in and break him out and kill him. And that's where we're going to leave Paul until next week. He's no longer in Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea, waiting for his accusers to come yet again and make their case before the governor, Felix. Nothing, it seems, was going according to Paul's plan. But everything was going according to God's plan. In the suffering, in the hot water that he was in, God was producing a strong hope inside of Paul. A hope that he was able to share with all those around him. And even today, with all of us who read his story. C.S. Lewis, another one of my favorite authors, uh, said some pretty interesting things. And one of the quotes that I kind of chuckle at when I hear it and that I particularly like goes like this. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion that makes you really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. You know, Paul wasn't in it for happiness, for comfort, for safety. If he were, he would have gotten out long before the set of circumstances. He didn't follow Jesus so that his life would be enjoyable and easy and full of success. In fact, because he followed Jesus, his life was anything but enjoyable and easy and successful. It seemed that he was always in hot water. The Christian life is not about playing it safe. Following Jesus is not about dotting our I's and crossing our T's, so to speak. Being a disciple of Jesus is about living life to the fullest for him. Following the way that he modeled for us, fully surrendering God's will and uh, surrendering to God's will, not to our own. Our Jesus-given purpose is the proclamation of the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus, to as many people as possible, and then discipling them and doing this regardless of the risks that we encounter. It is trusting that God is at work in all of the risks and the circumstances and the misunderstandings and the sicknesses and the storms and the, and the loss and even sin to bring about his will, both in our lives and in the lives of others. God wills that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And we get to go join God in this kingdom-building effort that he has. But I want you to notice a subliminal underlying theme going on here. Temple mobs, unscrupulous high priests, unjust councils, 
insane assassins, bloodthirsty soldiers, secret plots. None of these things could thwart God's plan. None of them could hinder the expansion of God's kingdom, and none of these things would hinder Jesus from using Paul to his fullest. And none of these things, none of the hot water that Paul was in could separate Paul from Jesus. Remember, Jesus had promised Paul that he would be with him, that he would testify in Rome. God was going to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish through Paul. And being in hot water like he was kept Paul clean, meaning it kept Paul trusting Jesus, taking courage as his eyes and his hope were on Jesus. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture because no one says it better than God does. Before Paul ever got to Jerusalem and went through this whole ordeal, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, or sorry, to the church in Rome. And I want to read a portion of that letter, and I want you to listen to it in light of what Paul was going through in our passage today, in light of what our church is going through even today. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now you catch those phrases? All things work together for good to them who love him. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? In all these things we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Were things going how Paul wanted them to go? No. Was he encountering difficulty after difficulty, trial after trial, loss after loss? Absolutely. Did the opposition and the difficulty mean that he was outside of God's will? That he was doing something wrong? Or that God wasn't blessing him? No, it was actually quite the opposite. All the opposition and the difficulty and the beatings and the loss and the isolation and the disappointment and the prison was being used by God to conform Paul more and more into the image of his son Jesus, to keep him clean. He predestined Paul. 
He called Paul. He justified Paul. And all of this was part of glorifying Paul, transforming him into the image of Jesus. Getting into hot water for Jesus, not being lukewarm in our faith, but living completely for him and obeying his will is an opportunity to see God work through the trials and crazy of everyday life to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus. The trials are an invitation to trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is like refreshing water, like cold water. Thank you for teaching us, for guiding us through it. Thank you that it is like bread for our souls, that gives us nourishment for the weak. I pray that we would hide your word in our heart, that we may not sin against you. I pray that we would live the truths of your word, that we wouldn't be lukewarm for you, that we would be hot and on fire for you, even if that puts us in hot water. We love you. You've given us life. We have nothing apart from you. I thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you for the example of Paul's nephew, a little guy caught up in a big scheme, and yet you used him mightily. I pray that we would each see ourselves in your big story of building your kingdom, that we'd be faithful to follow you, to obey you, and to love you and to love others as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name, our Savior and King. Amen.